3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, Wednesday Breakfast listeners. Good morning, everyone. How are you all today? How are you, Grace? I'm good, good. How are you? Very well, very well. We're sort of midwinter now and uh, everything's chugging along, chugging along. Yeah, it seems like the weather is not that cold today. Excellent, excellent. So, yeah. and but did, did you feel like it was very, very cold or was it like always? Because I felt like some people thought that it was bearable, but at the same time, it was still quite chilly. I don't know. I didn't really think about this morning. Just threw my coat on. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so an in-between winter's day. That's great. That's great. So <laughs> we've got a lot to digest today. Seems yeah, like we've got a, a fair bit on the show today. So we're going to kick off with a chat with uh, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Um, Annie McLaughlin spoke to Jasmine Duff uh, from the campaign about their their work um, campaigning for the uh, cancellation of the Trump Jr. tour to Australia and also about a Nazi gym that is operating in sunshine. So that, that'll be first up. And then we're going to go to the coast of New South Wales to um, the Knitting Nanas up in... Batemans Bay for a chat about uh, logging issues there. And following that, we're going to have an arts segment with Melbourne artist Setkin, who's joining us um, around 10 to 8. And Setkin's a man of many trades and passions, uh, bodybuilding, gaming and Egyptology. But he has a great exhibition on at the moment in Brunswick, so we'll be hearing all about that and then uh, following that grace you've got someone uh, to chat to about copyright laws yeah so uh, i'm going to be speaking to dr dylan tamapillai who is the associate professor at university of new south wales he's an expert on contract law copyright and commercial law and yeah we'll be discussing about australian's copyrights and following the recent uh, possibly coming court case of copyrights of two auto books against chat gpt Excellent. So, on to headlines. Yep, so first up, uh, to those who have been on social media, uh, there might have, you, you might have already heard of the new Meta app, uh, Threads, which has garnered over 100 million users since its launch last week. How experts warn, 
Experts warn that it has raised threats of privacy violations, which put the launch in the EU on hold, where you are because use uh, user data and shares and shares it across different platforms, including threats, will run a fall of impending privacy regulations. According to the Guardian, the list of past practices have given experts like Sorada cause for concern is long. In addition to being under FTC consent decree because of previous practices around improper collection and use of data in the US, Meta has also been fined for collecting sensitive personal data without obtaining proper consent under the EU's Journal Data Protection Regulation. And in Tasmania, a statue of a former premier and colonial figure will soon be removed from public display in Hobart and replaced with an empty plinth with the words, Why the empty plinth? In 1869, William Crowther was suspended for medical practice after his involvement in the decapitation of the body of an Aboriginal man. The Palawa community expressed distress at the public memorialisation of Crowther and requested its removal. The statue uh, has now been recategorised from highly significant to insignificant status by the Heritage Council and is on its way out. Yep. And there's actually also been an... Not also, sorry. Uh, There's this new infectious bacteria called Shigella, which also stands for Shigellosis. There's actually been an increase in this antibiotic resistance being detected in... Sorry. There's uh, increasing antibiotic resistance being detected in infections caused by this bacteria, which is Shigella. And this has been commonly seen among men who have had recent sexual contact with other men. So... And it has also been seen in return travellers. Shigellosis is generally a self-limiting infection, but is highly contagious and can be potentially serious. So men who have recent sexual contact with other men have high rates of infections and are at higher risk of contracting shigellosis, including from the antibiotic-resistant shigella strains. So treatment includes plenty of fluids and oral rehydration drinks, Antibiotic treatments may be required for cases of severe infection, but also at the same time, practicing safer sex and hand washing can help prevent the spread of sigillosis. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a nice little ease into the program with a song now, um, and then we'll be back to hear more. So this is Andrew Garamawi with Gutcham. Maybe not. We will try Kiravola, Stuck in the Sky. Somewhere 
Stuck in the Sky. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch.
3CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast with Grace and Claudia, Wednesday 12th of July. So the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, or CAF for short, is building the anti-fascist movement in Australia to combat the far-right extremism. Recently, they mobilised to block the Australian speaking tour of anti-woke, ultra-conservative Trump Jr. due to take place over the weekend. The tour has now been postponed due to unforeseen circumstances. They are also campaigning against the presence of national Socialist Network neo-Nazi group at a Sunshine Boxing Gym. Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast caught up with Jasmine Duff from CAF for a chat. So we'll take a listen now. And uh, we've got uh, Jasmine Duff on the line. She's from the Socialist Alternative and Anti-Racist, Anti-Fascist Campaign. How are you this morning, Jasmine? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Good morning. Good morning. You were so frightening that uh, Trump Jr. and Farage are no longer speaking. Indeed, yeah. It's good to see that they've decided to postpone the tour. We're not fully sure that they've um, cancelled. They're saying that they're going to be coming back. So, yeah, we're hoping to protest them when they do actually come to Australia. Yeah, there's a broader issue here, isn't there, that uh, people like uh, Trump Jr. and Farage should have uh, a following in Australia that, uh, although some people have said that they didn't sell enough tickets. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, So that's what people are saying. Hopefully it's true as well. Historically, far-right speakers like Marla Yiannopoulos, um, Nigel Farage actually previously previously, a lot of these people have toured to Australia because they did have a big audience here. Um, so for years we used to have big protests against them, disrupt their events, those kind of things. Um, maybe that audience has declined a bit. That would be a really positive thing. But yeah, I feel like this still is kind of a big audience for this type of racism in Australia. So it makes it important to go out and protest in the streets. Yeah. Tell us about the campaign, your campaign. Yeah, well, yeah, so the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is a campaign that's existed in Melbourne since um, 2015, which was when Reclaim Australia first tried to have big anti-Muslim marches in Melbourne. Um, so we formed in response to their first march where they attracted 1,500 people around about that uh, in Fed Square. And the point of our campaign, it was kind of a, a diverse campaign made up of all different types of working people, and it was about getting together to any time these kind of far-right um, groups showed their faces in Melbourne, coming out to counter-protest them to show that there's a bigger audience for anti-racist politics in Melbourne. Um, and that campaign continues. So our next kind of project is people might have seen there's 
a, a Nazi gym that's operating out in sunshine. Yep. So we've been organising protests against that gym and we're going to have one of those that's coming up as well. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, it's, it's such a bizarre concept um, to uh, uh, label yourself in that way. It is, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of the actual, um, you know, the National Socialist Network, which is, um, they've kind of cropped up more recently, you know, and they're obviously the most extreme version of it. So they actively call themselves Nazis, which makes them, yeah, pretty terrifying. And it's important for people to take a real stand against them. But at the same time, you can see where a bunch of um, this far-right politics comes from because so much of mainstream politics in Australia is based on racism. So, you know, the last time the National Socialist Network seriously mobilised was because Peter Dutton had just come out saying that migrants were responsible for the housing crisis. So a lot of this type of racism comes from the mainstream and it gives confidence to more far-right figures to, um, yeah, start organising. Yeah, it's a, it's a simplest, a simplistic argument that uh, diverts people's atten- attention from the systemic inequality within our society. Exactly. Yeah, it's about any time there's a problem, any time there's a problem in politics, any time there's an economic problem, pinning the blame on already oppressed groups in this country, um, so that the rich and powerful can, you know, hide their faces. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's fascinating too because if you look at uh, a broader uh, area, that if you look at that particular issue, uh, if you bring back the uh, camera, you can see that uh, uh, countries like Australia are, are what are called uh, Western um, economies. Uh, the uh, populations are ageing, and in actual fact, Australia's uh, intake of immigrants and other workers is essential for the maintenance of their economic uh, order effect, effectively. So uh, the whole idea of closing the gates on the refugees is a, a, and the uh, immigrants is a false argument uh, directed towards the disaffected uh, poor, I presume. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously false economically, but as well as that, for me being a socialist, you know, a big part of my worldview is that the economics also shouldn't um, matter to whether people are welcome in a country, but, you know, everyone should have the right um, to settle in a country um, where they have access to safety in particular, but also, you know, we should have open borders and freedom of movement of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess I was really just uh, pointing out the... Um uh, Two facedness of the, of, you know, like this use use of uh, the disaffected in this way is so yeah. two faced, you know. Um, the about Peter Dutton, you know, the Liberal Party and also the um, the business class in Australia that don't actually oppose migration because no. as they can see that it's important for the economy, but they use it as a way of yes, scapegoating migrants. Um, trying to drive racism in Australia. Oh, in, in actual fact, the uh, privatisation of um, tertiary education was a conduit for making money out of uh, people who wanted permanent residency, further money, mm-hmm. um, capitalising on uh, the need for uh, an influx of young people. It's so. It, uh, it's just. It's so incredibly callous. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, and you look at the way that the the visa system has worked in Australia, sorry, works in Australia and it's so exploitative, you know, it's based on um, trying to bring people here, tie them to employers so that 
um, you know, the whole, your whole uh, life in Australia is based around making money for the boss. The, you, you, your campaign, um, you, you know, in order to, I mean, you have projects, as you say, and it's really important that uh, you keep an eye on and keep a, people aware, I mean, of the of the idea that there's a Nazi gym in Sunshine uh, mm. and the campaign that's required to uh, bring these uh, issues out. Uh, how do you uh, spot uh, that these things are going on? It's a big mix. I mean, some of it is... Um, uh, getting tip-offs from different anti-racists and anti-fascists. Some of it is, um, you know, the, those Nazis themselves, they actually started mobilising in the streets and they were getting a lot of press. There was an article, I think, in the Sydney Morning Herald saying that they had a gym out there. Um, mm. So part of it is that often these groups as well get themselves into the media and try and make themselves prominent, which is how we find out about them. Yeah, right. That's fascinating. All right, so um, thanks for talking to us this morning and uh, we'll keep an eye out for... Uh, I have a, a particular interest in uh, this Farage talk, uh, speaking tour because that okay. was the um, night that uh, uh, the cops knocked me down and broke my arm. So I, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I sort yeah, of, you yeah. sort of uh, really, um, uh, you know, I have a very strong personal attachment to yeah. having these people not come here and talk. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, just add, I'll just add one last thing for your listeners, which is that if people are interested in getting involved in the campaign against racism and fascism, at the moment um, we're having regular meetings on the first and third Tuesday of the month, um, and we meet at 6pm at RMIT. The first and third at 6pm at where is it? At RMIT University in the CBD. Yeah, that's right. I just didn't catch that bit. Yeah, get involved. Yeah. Um, and we'll be protesting against the Nazi gym on September the 9th. Great. Thanks very much for talking to us. And that was Annie McLaughlin. They're talking with Jasmine Duff from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. And if you want to find out more about the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, you can head to www.carf.melbourne.com. They're also on Facebook and Twitter and uh, they've got a great intro pack there as well for new people wanting to get involved. Kofias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kofia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. And you're back listening to 3CR Breakfast. We're going to have another song now. This is Future by Beth King and the Hemingway Company. Mm-hmm. 
Pausing in the present and we're so hyper-aware Insufficiency or vapor trying hard to care But evolution now has led to such great stagnancy Killing revolution to preserve hegemony Call 
And that was Future by Beth King and the Hemingway Company. Yep, so now we're going to be heading into a co- another conversation. This is from Earth Matters, who spoke to the Knitting Nannis. Uh, sorry, back, back Horace from Earth Matters, who spoke to Knitting Nannis. So on May 1st, they at the South Coast were at Batesman Bay, New South Wales. And basically, they were there to protest the logic of native forests. We hear the co- we revisit a conversation where back interviews G, Lynn, and Colleen from there. Let's take a listen. Earth matters. I'm Beck Horridge. May first, International Workers' Day, was a bright, sunshiny day in Batemans Bay, New South Wales. The knitting nanas, South Coast, were outside the forestry headquarters in Batemans Bay again with plenty of banners and signs saying, listen to your nanas. I was ready to listen to my nanas and wanted to know more. Hi, Beck. My name's G. I'm from the south coast of New South Wales, and I would like to see an end to native forest logging. I believe it's an environmentally destructive practice. It is bad for not only the environment, but it's also being subsidised by taxpayers. So... I would like to see it being replaced by plantation timber and let's leave our native forests alone. I think all our native species, including some critically endangered ones, are quite dependent on our native forests. I'm thinking uh, swift parrots, endangered species such as gangangs and glossies. There are animal species, the gliders, greater gliders and yellow belly gliders, all dependent on our native forests. And when the log trucks go in there, they destroy so much of it. They dry out the forest floor, which of course then leaves it more prone to bushfires later on. So I believe we should be rapidly transitioning out of native forest logging and getting into plantation timber. And there have been several reports and lots of evidence produced to show that financially we would be better off in New South Wales without this destructive industry and not just written by university people and forest conservationists. But I noticed that there was a report by a quite conservative think tank came out the other day called the Blueprint Institute and two of their recommendations were that we should cease subsidising Forestry Corp New South Wales straight away and also we should be getting out of native forest logging. So let's see an end to this destructive industry. The writing is on the wall. We should not be damaging our native forests. We should be preserving them for our plants, animals, future generations as a carbon sink, one of our greatest, greatest allies climate change mitigation are our native forests. So let's just keep them where they are, stop destroying them, and look at the economic, environmental, and health and well-being benefits that we could get if we just left them in the ground. Gee, you're here with the Knitting Nanas outside forestry in Batemans Bay, asking them to see that the writing's on the wall to stop native forest logging in New South Wales, both north and south, knitting nanas. So, as an older person, what's your perspective on what's happening to our environment and society? 
what would you have to say to a younger person or a younger you about these issues? I'd say to a younger person, I'm sorry that my generation and those before us have made such bad decisions when it comes to the environment. And one of those is that we are still logging the native forests. I would like my grandchildren to grow up surrounded by just the incredible beauty and biodiversity I see when I go for walks through my native forest. Our generation really need to now sit up and start to be part of the solution. We're going to have to ask the young people, and from what I can see, a lot of young people are already growing up with the fact that there's some enormous changes happening on this planet. They're growing up with things like extreme weather events, bushfires, flooding, a pandemic. So I would say to them, one, enjoy what you've got, be a part of the solution, start making a lot of noise. The cockatoos were calling in agreement. I talked to Lynn next. I'm here with Lynn, a knitting nana, and I'm going to ask Lynn to describe where we are and what's happening. Oh, well, we're outside forestry. We're just trying to keep the pulse going of our feelings that the forest is being destroyed constantly just for the sake of a few dollars. They're taxpayer-funded organisation and, you know, saves the planet, basically. Lynn, tell me a little bit about your life and the forest and how this issue is built up for you. I'm from Mogo and I've always loved bushwalking. And then the forestry came and decided to start logging. Now with all their machines, they just bulldozed everything. And I had a beautiful two huge two meter spotted gums, which were in the creek that they took down. They only took about 10 foot of the trunk and left the rest of the tree, which both of those trees towered above the rest of the forest. And um, I just saw them destroyed and they took away almost like a rainforest on the side of the hill. Lynn, you're sitting there on a wheelie walker. On Earth Matters, we're interested about disability and the environment movement. Do you ever feel excluded from the environment movement because you don't have top-notch mobility? Oh, a lot of it's accessibility. I've been on a couple of protests and that. But on the last one, it was very awkward for everyone. So I did my own little protest on the side of the highway with signs and they texted me backwards and forwards. It's hard for other people who are able-bodied. They've got so much to do, but I have found that they've been helpful for me. And I can sit and, you know, collect uh, signatures. I think everybody's participation is important. Hello, I'm Colleen, Colleen Turner, and I two years ago retired to the south coast of New South Wales from Melbourne. So here in a shire where a third of the whole very large shire is native forest of one sort or another, national park or marine park or state forest, there's only 40 people in the whole of the Greens. So there's plenty of work to be done here making the beautiful, beautiful south coast greener. And it's interesting, there aren't as many active greens as you would think here and there are not many young active greens, which is different from where in Northcote there's a huge pile of those. 
and there's Extinction Rebellion, a very active Extinction Rebellion. None of that much here, but a very dedicated, strong, firm collection of Greens who've been around for a while now and are gradually, gradually having some impact. And that's really good to see. And it's good to see that we're able to, I guess, I'll mentor some of the younger ones and join up with people with like-minded interests. So, for example, a couple of the Indigenous groups have joined up and had conversations with us both formally and informally, and that's been really good and interesting. Um, and hopefully it's a kind of growing movement. I take issue with the Conservatives who say, oh, well, it's only latte-sipping people who are interested in green issues because... When you're here in the regions, if you like, then it's right up in your face and you can see how many beautiful things there are and how they don't look fragile. You know, huge big trees don't look fragile until somebody comes and cuts them down without a moment's notice. And then you see how fragile the whole environment are. Um, The purpose of what I'm trying to do now is restore some balance and in the tiny ways that I can manage that. And they are, you know, coming out on a nice morning and sitting with a group of lovely ladies knitting and um, protesting on the side of the road. Thank you to Colleen, Lynn and G, and all the other nanas around the country. There are now 40 Knitting Nanas loops in Australia. Find their webpage at knittingnanas.com. And that was Beck Horwich from Earth Matters, who spoke to G, Lynn and Colleen from the Knitting Nanas. They were at the South Coast, uh, Knitting Nanas South Coast. They were out at Batemans Bay, New South Wales, to protest logging of the native forests. Now we're going to be heading into a song. You're listening to TCR. And this is Like a Hero, Mac to Choi. Gangsta girl, not a gangster. They judge me, feel it, let me judge me, pop. Get her no harm. My heart beat, put a chain, and me, chalas on my pocket. Now get her no me, man, march to the name. Clean slash, fresh mom, like a white dog. But I feel as my homies, something said, march to prince, march to breed. She's super flat, I'ma flush it, set it dry. Got the plot, now my homies, put the blings on my chair. Ready for deposit, not just cash. If a rich man's mine, cause I can do what's supposed to do, like the heroes do. I don't give a damn why they took a bomb. When I'm swagging in the glass, straight ladies wanna try. Not stop it when you see me, just say hi. Cause I'm so fly. My history is crazy, but my mind is real. My history is crazy, but my heart is bright. Man, never jack. Not be like an angel, tough mind. Giving cats, slinging judgment on the raps of the lost children, caps to the side, raw diamonds in 
construction buildings Rally round, dash the line, trying to rise up We'll mash two, we'll bring us down and put the size up And listen up, we got a story for a rainy day It's time to play, white savage, all up in your face We keep fighting like we everyday heroes Girl, Al Pacino's and chick Robert De Niro's We got sass, got class and a swagger Sharp tongue, will cut you like a double-edged dagger And you can judge us cause it don't even matter Black and platinum, we at the top of the ladder was Like a Hero by Mac Tu Choi. Now we've got a couple of announcements to make about events that are happening um, over this week. So tonight, uh, Wednesday the 12th, at the Victoria Trades Hall in Carlton, there's a panel discussion event, Looking Back at Wars, What Have We Learnt? So a group of uh, panellists are going to be discussing the effect of wartime experiences in the present, what can we learn from wars that have occurred and how can we take that experience forward in our decision making? What are the effects of war on community and generations? Especially uh, important in the wake of the uh, opposition to the AUKUS military pact. So the discussions around Australia's involvement in different wars will include the frontier wars, the Iranian experience in the Iraq War, the Nagorno-Karabakh War, and the anti-AUKUS movement. Speakers will include Lydia Thorpe, Jerome Small, Diana Ancina from NIBS. So just to recap, that's Looking Back at Wars, What Have We Learnt? And it'll be taking place tonight at 6.30pm to 8pm at Victoria Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, 
And for information and bookings, you can go to nips.org.au forward slash new hyphen events. So that one is happening tonight. And then on Friday night, there's an event happening at Readings in Carlton. Our listeners who tune in regularly will remember we have spoken with Edda Gunnayden quite frequently on this program. Edda is the author of Root and Branch, Essays on Inheritance, which won the Victorian Premier's Literature Prize back in February for non-fiction. So Edda's a, a Sydney cider, but she's going to be coming down to Melbourne and will be in conversation at Readings in Carlton this Friday evening. So that will be uh, another great event to um, to go along to. It's a free event, but you do need to, to book. So just hop on to the Readings event page and um, check that out. Readings 309 Ligon Street, Carlton. You're listening to 3CR. And now we're going to go to the Zen Circus and Brian Rich, Oh the River. Things work together 
listening to 3CR Breakfast. We've now got uh, Melbourne artist Setkin on the line. He's a man of many trades and passions, bodybuilding, gaming and Egyptology among them. And he's here to talk about his current exhibition, Egyptology, Adventures in Zoomorphic Idliotry. It's showing at Brunswick East's newest art space, the Dolls House. Welcome, Setkin. Hello, and thanks very much for having me on your show. It's great to have you on the show. How are you this morning? Um, I'm still waking up, but good. Excellent. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, your background and your artwork? Sure. Um, I am an artist that mainly focuses in the area of sacred art, um, or if you like, uh, spiritual art. However, um, I like to put it in a contemporary context, so it's um, a little more apparent and accessible for people viewing the painting. And I choose to do this through a comedic or ancient Egyptian lens. So most of my paintings have got Egyptian gods, deities from uh, that pantheon, which we call the Neturu. And I've been doing this for 10 years this time. Um, I did actually initially... Uh, years ago, apply for uh, drama school and painting school because these were my two uh, passions and talents at the time. And I got accepted into both and chose acting. And um, many years later, uh, after a trip to Egypt actually in 2010, the flames were rekindled again, the painting, and um, I started actively painting again about 18 months, two years after that trip, and haven't stopped. So what was it about Egypt and Egyptology that caught your imagination and sparked that flame? I think the fascination with Egypt, which I think, is true for many people. We, we seem to have a real interest for that civilization collectively. Um, and so when, you know, there are exhibitions that come along, they tend to be very well attended. I'm talking about museum exhibitions of antiquities and artifacts. Um, and this was true for me from a very young age, like a, you know, a child, five, six, seven years old, um, being absolutely fascinated with the Egyptian culture, the pyramids, the mummies, the gods. Um, that's to explain that part of it, uh, the interest in Egyptology. Um, the, when I went to Egypt that first time in 2010, I guess you could say an awakening happened. Um, I 
I wanted to be, go there all my life and had the opportunity to go to Cairo. Um, I was over there for a conference at the time. Uh, sorry, I was in Italy. And uh, we were able to do like one sort of trip somewhere on the way back as part of our ticket. So I went to Cairo and, um, well, I guess you could say it was life-changing. Um, it's one thing, for example, to see pictures and videos and films of the Great Pyramid, but it's an entirely different thing to stand in front of it. And um, that, I think, is one of the things, amongst many, that woke me up. That sounds really powerful. Yeah, it was. So how, um, how have you brought all of this into the artwork you're doing and what can people coming along to your exhibition, Adventures in Zoomorphic and Idlotry, what can they expect? So they can expect to see a series of 14 paintings um, in a new gallery, uh, actually on Ligon Street, Brunswick, it's, uh, Brunswick East, more accurately. And it's set upstairs inside of a toy shop. And you can't miss the building because it's painted bright pink. You can pretty well see it <laughs> from either end of Ligon Street. Um, when you walk the stairs, you're greeted by the first painting, which is a poster advertising the event, and then each of the successive paintings afterwards have all got a QR code that, if you wish to use it, will give you a little bit more information about the painting. I'm not telling everything about the paintings on the unpublished blog that those QR codes will take you to, because I think there needs to be some space for the viewer to have their own experience and make up their own minds about what the paintings are to them. But for those people that need a little bit more than simply looking at the painting, the QR codes are there. Um, I've also scheduled three events throughout the course of the two-week exhibition, and we've already had one on Saturday night. We had the opening night, which was really well attended. And then the next event is this coming Saturday at 2pm where I'm hosting two 15-minute talks. Uh, at 2 o'clock, a reading of the hieroglyphs that are featured in my paintings. And then at 2.15, it'll be a monumental Egyptian tomb in Melbourne. And that talk is about David Syme's tomb uh, which is in Kew Cemetery, a rather spectacular example of Egyptian-influenced mausolea, and I've painted that tomb across a number of paintings, two of which are in the exhibition, and the talk revolves around why that, build, why that building was built the way it was and how it emerged out of that period of our colonial history and is relatively unknown today. 
And then finally, on closing night, the following Friday, which is the 21st, um, there are screenings of two short documentaries I made, uh, one called The Praying Mantis God of Ancient Egypt, which goes for 10 minutes, and then a spin-off, I guess, it's a documentary, it's outtakes of certain artistic elements from that film um, that I made for my Patreons in the days when I used to have a, a, a Patreon page. And I believe your uh, film, The Praying Mantis, God of Ancient Egypt, has won several international film festival awards, but it hasn't been screened in Australia before, so this is actually the first time people can come along and see it. Indeed. So um, I pretty well closed all of my social media accounts last year. I was taking a year off social media for personal reasons. And in resurrecting it, I didn't resurrect my Vimeo account. So all of the films I made are sort of all in storage. So um, this one hasn't actually been screened or seen for quite some time, even online. Um, But it's not currently available online. And as you just pointed out, it's the first um, Australian screening. So that's a very exciting uh, night coming up then uh, for you as well, if you haven't sort of been uh, re-watching your own film for a while, but particularly for those uh, coming along who will be seeing it for the first time. Yeah, and look, the the whole thing under the name of the exhibition, Adventures in Zoomorphic Idolatry, has a theme that goes through each of the paintings, the talks, and the, the documentaries, it all sort of pulls together in what I think is a cohesive, interesting artistic package. Mm. So who is the show aimed at? Do you have a particular audience in mind? And is there anything viewers need to be aware of coming along? Well, unfortunately, there is no uh, wheelchair access. It's upstairs. And if that's the case, if someone wants to see the exhibition, there is a virtual version of the exhibition and and we'll supply them with a link so you can look at that through your phone or your iPad. Um, Apart from that, the exhibition is very much, you know, a gallery space. Um, It's a different kind of art style that's out there. I guess you can always look at the videos I've got up on the Instagram page um, promoting the show if you'd like to have a look at those before you make your mind up about coming. But um, as I mentioned, the opening night was very well attended and um, I just read the guest book yesterday that people signed and had a lot of happy people there. So expect happiness. And how do, do people need to book tickets or do they just turn up? You simply turn up. Fantastic. And if uh, people uh, that have accessibility um, needs want to access the digital exhibition, how do they organise that? Is that something they do by email, phone? You can uh, contact me through my Instagram page 
or at Seken, at Seken.com, which is S-E-T-K-E-N, and I'll send you the link so that you can see it, including the, the uh, QR code page as well. Okay, well, we can put them up on our show notes as well. Um, right. And just before we wrap up, um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the toy shop, <laughs> toy store, which is the building yes. that the gallery space is in? Because that is a, a very unique, eclectic uh, space in itself. Um, and I believe you, yes. you have actually made some things that are on sale there. Is that correct? Um, I, well, my paintings are on sale. I did have a, um, I was part of the, the competition that the toy store had just prior, or an exhibition prior to the one that I'm doing now, which was based on a Ken doll bus. Um, so all the, the, the toy makers and artists that entered had a, a bus of Ken that they interpreted for the show. And um, I tried to resurrect my, my not very good sculpting skills for my entry into uh, that exhibition. But the, the store, which is called This Is Not A Toy Store, um, is probably more correctly a store of collectibles because I think boys... Uh, we think of toys as something for children, and I guess there is there's uh, stuff there for kids as well. Um, if you want to know more about the toy store, uh, you can have a look at their website. This is not a toy store dot com, um, or go in and see them. They're open from eleven a.m. to six p.m. Tuesday to Sunday, uh, which is coincidentally the hours that the gallery is open as well. Perfect. So uh, I guess with that Barbie movie on, you'll have uh, floods of people wanting to see an alternative version of Ken at the yeah, uh, well, um, toy store. They, they've got, actually got them in the shop window at the moment as well. So um, even if you did happen to be going past um, after hours, you can see the Ken dolls that were a part of the com- competition that are now on sale in the window. Excellent. So um, thank you very much for chatting to us this morning, sharing the information about your exhibition. It uh, sounds absolutely wonderful and uh, I'm going to try and get along on Saturday and catch those uh, talks that you're going to be giving and learn a bit about Egyptology. Well, it'll be great to see you, Claudia, and do introduce yourself if you do come along. Absolutely. Well, best of luck and... Um, Yeah, thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for that. And that was Setkin speaking about his art exhibition Adventures in Zoomorphic Ideology, showing now at the Dolls House Gallery, Brunswick. The exhibition is on until July 21st. And... The hours are actually a bit variable, so the gallery does open at 11am every day except for Monday. It's closed on Mondays, but some days it shuts at 5 and some days it shuts at 6. So I suggest that you hop on to the This Is Not A Toy Company website and uh, just check the times if you're thinking of going later in the day. So as Setkin said, there are talks this Saturday at 
2pm and the film screenings of the two documentaries he mentioned are on Friday the 21st of July. You can find out more about Setkin's work and the exhibition at www.setkin.com. And the Pride Centre also has uh, details of the event on their uh, events page. So, um, yeah, something else to check out this weekend. Lots of events on. We'll be back shortly to speak about copyright with Grace's guest. Uh, You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at this station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au
You're listening to GCR 855am. So we're going to be speaking to Dr. Dylan Tampapillai, who is the Associate Professor at University of New South Wales. He's an expert on contract, copyright and commercial law. And we're going to be discussing about Australian copyright laws following the recent court case of copyright of two authors' books against ChatGPT. It's something we're also hearing for the first time. So joining me this morning is Dr. Dylan Tampapillai. Good morning, Dr. Dylan. Hi, Grace. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Vin? Yeah, pretty good. Awesome. So before we head into the main issue we're seeing here, can we just first get you to explain to us what is the copyright law here in Australia for listeners who don't understand what it is? Okay, yes. So so copyright is legal protection for the written expression or or other tangible output that uh, you've produced. Mm -hmm. So if I write a book, I have copyright in the book. But copyright only applies to tangible forms of expression. It doesn't apply to ideas. Mm, I see. That's interesting. And but in but then we also seeing for the first time here with the issue that the authors were are suing OpenAI for for copyright in ChatGPT. So can you explain what was the issue here with that? Yeah. So so these lawsuits are quite interesting, and I know that Sarah Silverman. Uh, the American comedian has also uh, started another lawsuit as well. Mm. The, effectively, what these authors are trying to do, I, I, I think, and I'm speculating, mm-hmm. is find out how the actual training process uh, for these large language models is, is taking place. Because they actually have to prove, and they haven't proven as yet, that the training took place on, on their books as opposed to book reviews or, or anything else. Um, and I think they're concerned that there is a shadow repository somewhere in which their works are being stored and that this is being utilised to answer questions and prompts from from other users. So I think that that's the basis of the suit. I see. So is it because, like, um, someone when someone asked a question in ChatGPT, they just put out quotes from the book. Is that is that the problem? Is that where they where they started thinking like, oh, that's copyright, and so that's why they got to sue OpenAI? Is that is that the is that the thing there? So, so, so that would be interesting if, if that was the case, because mm. if it was simply quotes, quotes, because um, copyright law is basically a form of property, and with all property regimes, there is always exceptions to the rules. So you, you, in in any system, you've got to balance the right of the person who owns the thing against people who might interact with it in some other way. So it's like having a fence, and if somebody, oh, or, or, or yeah, so somebody you know just pops over the fence to to pick something up, mm. uh, which you know the kids next door, you know, hit a ball over and they grab the ball and come back. You're really going to sue them for trespass? Probably not. Um, it's, it's a little bit like that. So copyright law has these exceptions, which we call fair dealing in Australia. In the United mm-hmm. States, you'd call them fair use. So if it were just about mere quotations, quotations might, depending on the length, simply be fair dealing. But I actually think what they're worried about is that the book is sitting in the repository. Uh, and while the book is not being replicated in the answer, all of the ideas sitting in the book are being perfectly distilled in the answer. Uh, and what that means is then you don't go need to go read the book, actually, and we'll give you the information you want from it. Mm, 
I see. And you you mentioned something in part of your article. You talked about how the real danger is that open AI can do some of the things humans can, human authors can do. So, what did you mean by that when you mentioned that? Well, so, so this is where I think the real drama actually is in, in these disputes. It's the replacement of human labor in certain fields of endeavor. And mm. it's, and, and I actually think this would be more an issue for, for academic type authors rather than uh, authors who write novels and the like. But if, if you can post questions to, to ChatGPT and ChatGPT or other technologies like it can give you really sensible answers and accurate answers on, on things, then what happens to the market for people who are writing books on physics, on chemistry, on, on contract law, on copyright law? Once those books are fed into a shadow repository, the AI tech is, is trained upon these things. Mm. There might not necessarily be the need for humans to do basic research. Uh, and the, there's a whole group of people who do those sorts of things. And, and that labor gets replaced. And I think this is what they're particularly worried about. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think technology is very scary, especially with the rise of it. It's taking over our jobs. So that's not a good thing because we still need jobs and we need to survive. <laughs> uh, yep. yeah. There's another way of looking at it. Okay, mm. Sorry to, to um, But it might simply be that uh, there, there's a skills gap that exists between a creative author who's really good at creative writing and mm. an ordinary person. So what might happen with these sorts of technologies is that they could ask, can you write in the style, can you write a story in the style of person X about XYZ plot? If the AI tech comes up with like a couple of pages and the human author then goes and, you know, does some editing on that, the skills gap that would exist between the original author, the type of authors who are suing, and the ordinary author, normal human author, that gap has narrowed because of AI. And that might be one of the problems or one things that really irk um, quite a few authors. Mm, I see. And then just going a bit to Australian copyright laws, uh, because we, are, we just want to understand a bit more of how, yep. how, how if, it, if this case happened in Australia, how would it apply? And you mentioned, you mentioned something about uh, in regards to like um, Australia's use of fair use decisions into its Copyright Act, uh, but then they have... Repeat, uh, repeatedly declined to house fair use. So, can you explain what that what what that meant? So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, if, if this case were to occur in Australia, I think it would fail for much the same reasons it's probably going to fail in the United States. Mm. Um, the first is that they actually have to prove, on balance of probabilities, uh, their works were fed into the shadow repository. They have to actually demonstrate the shadow repository exists. Uh, that that's a bit difficult. Um, there are some rules on evidence that, that might apply there. Um, but even if you know that your book was copied into some repository, that's simply one single copy. And so the damages that flow from that, it's, it's, it's difficult to actually substantiate. Um, you know, it, it would be fairly minimal, I would think. There might be more damages for removing rights management information if that is indeed what has occurred. But again, that needs to be proved. Um, the problem is that the real thing they're complaining about is people asking questions and at GPT or tech like it giving sponsors, there isn't copyright in ideas. 
So you don't have property in, in ideas, you're not going to be able to protect that. So there isn't then going to be a remedy. On the fair use issue, Australia has, yeah, effectively for two decades, had a debate about whether we should have fair use. The significance of this is that the fair use doctrine in the United States has allowed the courts to protect technologies where those technologies were capable of substantial non-infringing uses. And the most famous case is the Sony case about the video cassette recorder. Mm. So when, when the VCR came out, the content industry sued, saying, well, people are going to steal our, our content. Um, the US Supreme Court, by majority, decided that, well, uh, it's OK if people are time-shifting, so recording the TV program to watch it later, but they're not keeping that, that program in the tempo. So that was fair use. Uh, and the technology was allowed to um, develop. And off the back of that, we got, you know, Blockbuster, all the, you know, video rental stores we used to have, which in turn led us to all the streaming services and, and the like. Mm. So you're able to protect technology and technology then develops other markets. So it would be quite, it would be a bit scary if these types of lawsuits actually foreclosed this type of technology because we don't know what benefits, significant benefits might be lying for us on on, on the other side of all of the stuff. Mm. I see. I, I think we can... Yeah. yeah, just... Sorry, do you have anything else to add? Uh, all I was going to say is that mm. um, it, it is a bit disappointing that Australia doesn't have fair use. Mm. Uh, and we've... Our lawmakers have been fairly conservative and we've stayed with fair dealing, which we've had since the inception of the copyright legislation. I see. I guess... I guess... I think we could kind of understand why the authors would like to protect their ideas because, you know creative work is very important to be kept uh, protected but then also because this whole thing is just coming up with the with the fact that, that their ideas as, as you have also mentioned and as well but then at the same time there's also laws to protect technology and all so is it do you think do you think like there's a chance for this case to succeed if it would have happened in Australia and is, is or, or is this just something that we have to just keep looking out for I, I, my personal view is it's very unlikely that this case would succeed if it was run in Australia, mm-hmm. um, simply because the, the rules of copyright don't really support some of the arguments that are, that are made here. I read through the statement of claim. I didn't see where they were actually able to say which parts of the books were copied, mm-hmm. and that's fairly significant in a copyright dispute. Uh, sorry, my, 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 present, my colleague just wants to ask a question for a moment, if that's okay. Yeah. Sure. I was curious to know... Uh, what you whether you have any advice for authors of books um, who potentially could find themselves in this situation? Is there anything authors should be doing um, or looking out for that might you know help avoid this situation? Well, my advice is keep doing what you're doing. I, I, I think that if we're talking about um, AI getting into creative works. The reality is that most people are probably going to want to read creative works written by human beings, not by not by AI technologies. So I, I would say keep doing what you're doing. I don't think that AI tech is going to come along anytime soon to replace um, human authors. It might assist and augment human authors, so that might be an interesting thing to look out for. Um, that it's like predictive text. It can ha- help you write um, and faster. So there might be benefits in the technology. 
Mm, interesting. And I really sorry, Doctor Lim, but we're gonna have to wrap up really soon. We just want to get one last, just one last thing from you. Do you do you think ideas should be protected? It's I think it's something that I guess we would probably just question here and think about at the moment with what we can uh, get out from this from this case that might have more things coming out from it soon. But like, do you think ideas should be protected? No, and the copyright law should not protect ideas. The the danger of this, and we're seeing this danger in pop music is that you then protect whoever is first in time and it then allows later... It then, it then doesn't allow later creators to come along and, and um, you know, express themselves and, and do all the things that we actually want human beings to do, to be creative, to be expressive uh, and, you know, to, to contribute to the culture. Think about it in terms of things like 12 Bar Blues in, in, in music. If, if someone had copyright protected 12 Bar Blues when that started, mm. they would have foreclosed an entire genre of music and in turn, you wouldn't have got rock and roll. Mm. So, so it's a no. <laughs> so I'm a no on, on overprotection. Mm, I see. Well, all right. Thank you so much, Dr. Lin, for your time and thank you so much for chatting us so early this morning. Thank, thank you, guys. appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Dwight, take care. And that was Dr. Dylan Tompapillai, the Associate Pro Professor at University of New South Wales. He's an expert on contract, copyright and commercial law. And we basically discussed about showing copyright laws uh, in regards to the recent court case of copyrights of two authors' books against ChatGPT. So hey, that was really interesting stuff there, right, Chloe? Very interesting. Mm. Yeah, I guess the thing with ideas is that... Um if an idea is protected and it's not developed, then you don't actually get an outcome. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think I also try to, try to understand what the authors are trying to get here with this court case as well. Like, because creative, create, I, I, I think when it comes to creative work, because we always want to make sure that, no, this is my idea. This is, this is not yours. So I want to make sure I get the whole of it. And I, I, I guess we can all understand that. But at the same time, I guess because it's not, finalized in a way and it's also not um something that was concrete. published or concrete yeah so i guess logically and uh, legally it's yeah just not formidable yeah mm. so yeah the copyright law only protects the actual um written works yeah the yeah. publication of of the author's idea mm. and uh, if it stays in your head <laughs> yeah unfortunately <laughs> you we can't uh, yeah protection for that unfortunately that's true but i guess also like what they're trying to figure out here it's whether chat gpt um has information of things that have already been written so i guess that's the very interesting uh, written slash published but we don't know and we are we aren't we aren't too sure so i guess that's the part that it's going to be very dangerous for authors and whoever's works and information are in chat gpt so i think that's what we need to look out for technology that's why they're so scary yeah i think um this whole area of ai is just moving very quickly and mm. it's like learning as we go um yeah it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen next but uh yeah thanks for bringing us that story thank you when i was new to melbourne i found a food not bombs fly on the road 
and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Food Not Bombs. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering? Doing a reception shift? Getting a program on air? Training in radio skills? Or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. listening to 3CR Breakfast and we're coming to the end of our program this morning. It's been a a very varied uh, program dealing with everything from anti-fascist movements and campaigns to copyright to Egyptology and logging (laughs) and lots of interesting stuff. I guess that's the thing about current affairs. We bring different issues and different varieties of things to talk about. Yeah, next week we'll be uh, speaking with Kate Orty, who uh, is part of a Yes campaign uh, for The the Voice um, running in northern Victoria. So we'll be having a chat with her and uh, there'll be lots more next week. So just before we wrap up, um, just a quick rundown of those events tonight. uh, Trades Hall Carlton, looking back at wars, what have we learnt? Uh, Friday night, Edda Ganyajin at uh, Readings, talking about Root and Branch, essays on inheritance, and of course, Setkin's uh, Adventures in Zoomorphic Illiteracy uh, until July 21st at the Dolls House Gallery. This is not a toy shop. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online. At- 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.